with Georgetown University's basketball program. Probably less of us are familiar with Georgetown University's football program. They do have a football team, believe it or not. Well, this football team from Georgetown University during the 70s was coached by a man by the name of Lou Little. Lou Little was a very average, mediocre, college-level coach. And as he was coaching for about 12 years, 12 to 14 years there at, the, at Georgetown University, for a few of those years, he had one young player in particular that was himself a very average college-level player. He wasn't the fastest one on the team. He wasn't the strongest. He wasn't the biggest. He was very average in his skill levels. He was good enough to make the team, but he was not good enough to play. Each game, he would get in for a few plays. If Georgetown was ahead, if they were behind, he was not going to get into the game. But the coach Little liked this play particularly because of his attitude, because this particular college player had a very, very uh, team-oriented attitude. He was one of these players that was a real asset in the locker room. He always had a positive attitude. He had a way of encouraging his teammates. And the coach really connected with this particular player, and they sort of had a bond together. And so he kept him on the team, even though he really wasn't an asset on the field. He nevertheless kept the team. One thing about this particular player that Coach Little had always noticed that struck him as unusual was this. When game time would come and his parents would come into town to watch him play, the coach noticed that he would see this particular player walking around campus with his father and they would walk around campus arm in arm. And he always thought that that was a very touching, sort of sentimental gesture, especially in this day and age, how many college-age kids walk around campus arm in arm with their father. So that always sort of impressed him about this particular kid. Well, one time, uh, one particular game morning, the team was all down at the field getting ready to begin suiting up for the game when the coach received a phone call from this particular player's mother. And the, and the mother had called the coach and asked the coach to give a message to the son. You see, the boy's father had just passed away from a heart attack. And the mother couldn't get in touch with her son to give him the news, so she called the field knowing that he was getting suited up for the game and asked the coach to give the message to the young player that his father had just passed away from an unexpected heart attack. So the coach does this, and of course the young player is heartbroken. And he doesn't suit up. He goes home, spends a week or so with his family at home, and then he comes back for the next game, the next following weekend. And the next following weekend was the season finale, the, the, uh, the rival of Fordham University. And as they're getting ready for the game that morning, they're all suiting up, and this particular player comes to Coach Little and asks the coach, Coach, can you start me? I really would appreciate it if you could start me for this game. Well, the coach, knowing that he wasn't good enough to start, but also knowing what the young player had just been through, he said, all right, I'll start you, but you know that you're not good enough to play, and you know that you're not good enough to start, and so you're just going to be in for a few plays. As long as we're clear on that, I'll start you and I'll take you out after a few plays. To which the player said, okay. Only the coach never took him out of the game. He played every single offensive play of the game because he played like a madman. For 60 minutes, he played like an all-American football player. Nobody had ever seen him play like this, this, like this before. He was making plays that he'd never made. After the game... Of course, they're in the locker room celebrating, and the coach asks the young player, what got into you during this game? And the player answered, well, I was playing this game for my dad. You see, 
Uh, my dad and I were real close, and, and I know that you saw us walking around campus arm in arm, and you never really asked why that was, but you know, Coach, my dad was blind. And so that's why we would walk around arm in arm. And for today, for the very first time, he saw me play. And so I wanted the first game that he ever saw me play, I wanted it to be a good one. Because that young player, at least for those 60 minutes, he was playing for an audience of one. There was a stadium full of people watching him. But his concern was not on any of those people any of those spectators watching him, his thoughts were only on his father, whom, as he understood it, was watching him play for the very first time. He was playing for an audience of one. And because he was playing for an audience of one, he was intense, he was focused, and he got the job done like he never had before. Paul was very much cut from the same cloth because Paul lived his life for an audience of of one. He ran the race of his life for an audience of one. And because he lived his life for an audience of one, he also was intense, he was focused, and he got the job done. He's been on his way to Jerusalem for quite a while now, and everyone in his life has told him to not go to Jerusalem. Because in Jerusalem, some unpleasant things are going to happen. And then along comes Agabus and even gives him even more information that he's going to be bound, he's going to be arrested, and all this unpleasantness is waiting for him in Jerusalem, and Paul even suspects that he may even be killed. He may lose his life. And, but nonetheless, he is determined to go to Jerusalem. Why? Because he's living his life for an audience of one. And because he lives his life for an audience of one, discerning the will of God is much easier for Paul. And once he knows the will of God, doing the will of God is also much easier for Paul. Because Paul doesn't have a whole group of people that he's trying to please. He has one. And so our story today takes us into Acts chapter 21, and our story today will change from this point on to the end of the book because Paul's missionary work is done, at least for the story of Acts, it's done. And for the rest of the book, Paul will either be in custody or he will be defending himself before Roman officials, before governors, before uh, emperors. That'll take the rest of the book for Luke to flesh all of that out. But before Paul begins to defend himself to the Romans... He must first defend himself to the Jews, and not the, not the Jewish Sanhedrin council, but to the Jewish Christians. And that's the where we'll pick up in our story today. We're going to begin from Acts chapter 21, verse 17. And we, he, we see here in verse 17 that Paul and this giant cohort of disciples has arrived here in Jerusalem. Um, it's a large group of people, disciples from Caesarea, other disciples from other places, Ephesus and other places that have followed him here, plus Luke and his whole missionary entourage, they've arrived, and they're staying at the house of Manasseh. And we pick up in verse 17 when we read these words, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. So Luke tells us of a small group, a small welcoming party that received Paul and his friends gladly. This group would have probably been maybe mostly made up of the apostles, maybe the leadership of the church, but we're, we're, we're sort of given the impression that it's a smaller group of people that welcomes Paul and they're very glad to see him. But then we move on to verse 18 and we see that Paul moves from here to a larger group of people the next morning. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. So all the elders of the church in Jerusalem are present here. We have 
pretty good reason to believe that that would have meant 70 elders. Um, we have reason to believe that the church in Jerusalem, the early church in Jerusalem, fashioned their leadership based upon the, uh, the uh, uh, Jewish Sanhedrin model, which was 70 elders. So it would have been a large group of people, elders. These are all Jewish believers in Christ. Some of them know Paul. Some of them don't know Paul directly, but they all know of him. So he goes in with them, verse 18, verse 19, after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So he related to them one by one what God has done, in particular on this most recent, most recent third missionary journey. Now, told us a lot of what has happened, but Luke has not told us everything. But Paul tells them everything that has happened. So he has quite a lot to tell them, doesn't he? He tells about Ephesus, and he tells about the revival that broke out there in Ephesus. He tells of how the, uh, the, the Ephesian believers were still caught up in the sin of witchcraft and the occult, and how they were uh, moved to bring all of that and burn their books after, after the sons of Sceva. He tells them the story of the son, seven sons of Sceva and how they tried to cast the demon out of the one guy, and the demon instead jumps on them and beats them up and tears their clothes off, and they run away. And that causes this huge revival among the Ephesian believers, and they burn all their books of witchcraft and the occult and magic, and how much money all those books were worth. And they, they drive this stake in the ground. From this point on, we are separating ourselves from this particular sin, and that brings revival to the church there in Ephesus, which causes the idol industry in Ephesus to dry up. All the idol makers are, are none too happy about that, so they cause a riot. Paul thinks he's going to lose his life. Then the city clerk steps in and calms everything down. God showed his hand there in magnificent ways. He tells all about that. He tells about the Ephesian elders and the leaders, about the health of the church there in Ephesus. He tells about the Galatian churches that he's visited. He tells about the church in Corinth. The whole story of how the church in Corinth has rebelled against him and how they have shirked his authority and they've, um, they've rebelled. It's his authority to his face, how he's written these sad letters to them and he's made multiple visits there, but now the church in Corinth has repented and been reconciled back to him. He's told that whole story there. He also tells about Eutychus and the swan dive that Eutychus does out the third floor window because Paul's preaching all night long and how Paul runs down and resuscitates him. God raises him back from the dead. He tells about the sermon in Troas. He tells about the final meeting of the elders in Miletus of the Ephesian church. He tells all of these things and much, much more. In addition to this, he probably has with him some exhibits to show them. Exhibits like Trophimus of Asia or Secundus of the church in Thessalonica. Gentiles that are now brothers in Christ and they're here to support Paul and say, we are your brothers and we are here because Paul has brought the gospel to us. He has a lot to tell them. probably takes him most of the day to tell all of this. But in addition to all of this, Paul also has something else to do in this meeting. Luke doesn't tell us about it specifically, but the other thing that Paul has to do is he gives them the offering that he has collected for the Jewish church. This has been one of the major focuses of Paul's life for the last two years. Everything that Paul has written, he wrote the, the two letters to the Corinthians, he wrote the letter to the Romans. They talk, both of those letters, all three of those letters, talk about the offering that he's collecting. This has been a major emphasis of his life. This offering that he's collecting for the Jewish church that is experiencing a famine. And Paul sees an opportunity here, solidarity between the Gentile church and the Jewish church. And so he goes around to all the churches and collects this 
huge offering for them. We don't know how much it was, but we imagine that it was a large sum of money because all the churches participated. The church in Thessalonica, the church in Berea, the church in Philippi, the churches in Macedonia, the churches in Galatia, Antioch, Ephesus. All these churches have contributed to this offering. And Paul now brings the offering and gives the offering to them. Now, this was the day, of course, there's no checkbooks, there's no debit cards, there's no online banking account, so Paul doesn't transfer the money into their account. Paul gives them the money physically, which means there's probably bags or maybe a box, some, some kind of container that's, that contains a lot of money. And they bring it in and they set it down in the middle of the floor and they say, this is for you, brothers. The Gentile believers have been so moved by your difficulties here in Jerusalem that they want you to have this. Now, after all of that, after hearing the miraculous ways of God that He's done through Paul, after seeing this offering that He's brought, what would you expect? If you were Paul, what would you expect? What sort of reaction? You would expect, thank you. We appreciate you, Paul. We're touched by this. Probably some tears, some hugs. You'd expect a real moment of solidarity here. However, Paul is in for a surprise. Verse 20, and when they heard it, defied God. That's a good thing. They hear all that Paul has done and they give God the glory for this. But then the rest of that, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands here are among the Jews of those who have believed. In other words, Paul, the gospel is not just spreading only through you. God has been working here in Jerusalem too. There's now thousands of believers here. When you were here before, the church was this big. Now the church is this big because there are thousands of more that have been added, but then they continue. They are all zealous for the law. And at that moment, the smile on Paul's face disappeared because Paul knows where this is going. That phrase, zealous for the law, is a key word to clue us in to what exactly they're talking about and where they're going with this. Zealous for the law means Judaizers. Zealous for the law means those who now believe in Christ, but yet they still attach to salvation by grace. They still attach circumcision, sacrifices, dietary laws. They attach all of that onto that. That's what James, or whoever's speaking this, that's what they mean by zealous for the law. So Paul now, in this moment in which this is the culmination of two years of his life, he's been driven to get to Jerusalem to do this, he does it, and now everything just seems to fall apart because Paul now knows where this is going. He continues, verse 21, And they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. So that's the problem. The problem is that there are all these Jews, Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, and they have been told that Paul is out there teaching that Jews no longer should circumcise their children and Jews should no longer follow the customs of Moses. So the question now becomes, is that what Paul is teaching? Is Paul teaching that you're not supposed to circumcise and you're not supposed to follow the customs of Moses. Kind of, yeah. I mean, that is sort of what he's teaching. However, 
It's a lot more complicated than that. Paul is teaching a distinction between circumcision for one motive and circumcision for another motive. He's teaching a difference between following the customs of Moses for one purpose and following it for a different purpose. Take a look in your notes here at Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 through 6. This is a good summary of what Paul is teaching in regard to circumcision and the customs of Moses. From Galatians 5, verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. In other words, I am free. I am free from the obligations of sacrifices. I am free in Jesus. I'm free from the customs of Moses. I'm free from the obligation of circumcision, etc., etc., etc. Therefore, Therefore, stand firm and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Through the, for through the Spirit, by faith, we, e- we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So, Paul says to the Galatians, do not accept circumcision. If you accept circumcision, you cut yourself off from Christ. So does it sound like that the critics of Paul in Jerusalem have a point? They do have a kind of, kind of have a point, because that is, in a way, what Paul is teaching. However, it's more complicated than that. They're claiming that Paul is teaching the Jews to stop circumcising their children and to stop obeying the customs of Moses. Paul writes this particular passage to the Galatians. Now, who are the Galatians? Jews or Gentiles? They're mostly Gentiles, right? There's probably a few Jews in among them, but they are mostly a Gentile church. And so Paul says to Gentile believers, do not accept circumcision. Why? Because false teaching come to that church that goes just like this. Salvation is by Christ alone, but Jesus was the Messiah to the Jews. And so therefore, in order to be eligible for His free gift of salvation, you must do this, and you must do that. In other words, the Galatians understood circumcision, which they were gentle, which means they weren't circumcised, which means they would have to go back and be circumcised. They understood accepting circumcision as doing something that made them eligible for salvation. Which is why Paul says that completely contradicts the gospel of grace. Once you have to do something, it's no longer a gospel of grace. It's a gospel of works. And so if you accept circumcision with that understanding of it, then you cut yourself off from Christ because you have said, I must do this, to add to the work of Christ. But that's why he tells the Galatian believers to not accept it. There's a distinction that needs to be made. Paul is not saying that circumcision is bad. He's not saying that circumcision is good. In fact, he says neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything. It all depends on your heart. It all depends on what you understand that you're doing. Like Paul will say in Romans chapter 14, nothing in and of itself is good or evil. It all depends on your heart. And so if you're in your heart, you think that by accepting circumcision, you are making yourself more approvable to God, 
You are making yourself more acceptable. You're causing Him to like you more. You're gaining His favor by accepting this circumcision. Then Paul says, do not do it. However, there's no indication that Paul ever said to to Jews, stop circumcising your children or stop observing the customs of Moses. Now, what would Paul have said if a Jew had asked Paul, a Jewish believer in Jesus, had asked Paul, should I continue to follow the customs of Moses? How do you think Paul would have answered that? It depends. It depends on why you're doing them. If you're doing them because you think it makes you more approvable to God, stop it. Because it's not. It's contradicting the law of grace. However, if you're doing those things out of gratitude for the free gift of salvation, that's a different story. That's what Paul would have said. Now let's take this into our modern day. Let's let's just apply a modern day example of this. Um, Let's just take the example of giving to the church. The same principle applies to giving to the church. Should you or should you not give to the church? Depends. It all depends on what, how you believe you're doing this or what, or what you believe you're doing when you give to the church. If in your heart you think that giving to the church wipes over some sins of this past week, makes, makes you more likable to God, if, if you give to the church and God says, well, okay, you did this during the week, but since you gave to the church, okay, everything's all... E-. If that's your understanding of giving to the church, then stop it. Because that is contradicting the law of grace. However, if you understand that God's favor is given to you completely undeserved, and when you were at your ugliest, that's when God loved you and saved you, and so therefore there's nothing you can do to make yourself more acceptable to Him, but out of love and gratitude for what He's done for you, you feel compelled to give to the church, then absolutely. You see? So the question is, it depends. And the same thing with circumcision. The same thing with the the customs of Moses. The same thing with everything. It all depends on your understanding of what you're doing when you do this. So yes, they do have a point that Paul is teaching something very close to that, but they don't get the whole picture of what exactly it is that Paul is saying. So, there's this issue going on in Jerusalem. uh, James says to them, they're all zealous for the law, verse 21, they have been told about you, that you teach the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to our customs. Now, this is a really, really big deal. And let me just explain for a moment why this was such a big deal. The year is around 57 A.D., 57 A.D. was a time of unusual unrest among the Jewish people, especially in Jerusalem. It was a time of nationalism, of Jewish pride was reaching an all-time high. The Jewish people were getting very, very tired of being ruled by foreigners, by Gentile pagans, and they were just getting really tired of the Romans. And As a result, Jewish nationalism was at an all-time high. Pride and what it meant to be Jewish was greater now than at any other time. And and one of the offsprings of all this was that all this nationalism was rising, resentment towards the Romans was rising, and one one offspring of that was that there was all these rebellions. In fact, if we were to flip ahead to chapter... Not chapter, flip ahead to verse 38, the same chapter... Flip down to verse 38. 
Paul is later on going to be arrested by the Romans. And here's what the Roman centurion says to him. Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? So as he's arresting Paul, he says, Hey, aren't you that terrorist that just a few months ago led that big rebellion? You're from Egypt? You know, and Paul's going to say, No, 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 that's not me. But the point is, there were all kinds of uprisings and rebellions right now. Because Jewish nationalism, Jewish fervor, was at an all-time high. Just 13 years in the future, in the year 78, is when Rome is going to have enough of this. And they're going to say, enough, they're going to send in their army, and they're going to burn the place to the ground. That's how bad things are getting. And so, Jewish nationalism is at a fever pitch. And now these Jewish Christians have heard that Paul is out teaching Jews to be less Jewish. You see the rub? He's teaching our people to be less Jewish. Now, add to that the fact that they are still suspicious of Paul. The Jewish Christian church never embraced Paul. They were always suspicious of Paul. Remember when he came to Jerusalem the first time? They wouldn't even meet with him. Still to this day, they're suspicious of Paul and what he's doing because Paul was instrumental in the church at Antioch. Paul planted the church in Ephesus. Both of those churches have now passed the church in Jerusalem in size and importance. Jerusalem used to be the center of Christianity. The mother church was in Jerusalem. That's where Christianity began. Not anymore. The Jerusalem church has now been overtaken by the church in Antioch and the church in Ephesus. Both of them Gentile churches. Paul's responsible for both of them. Now here's this guy, Paul, and we've heard he's teaching Jews to be less Jewish. Add that to all this Jewish nationalism going on, you've got a problem. And James and the elders recognize this problem that now exists. And so then verse 22, what then is to be done? Something's got to be done about this. They will certainly hear that you have come. So when they hear that you're here, Paul, then there's going to be an issue. But, verse 23, we have a plan. And here's the plan. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourselves along with them and pay their expenses so that they may have, they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. Okay. So this is a big problem, Paul, but we've got a plan. And here's the plan. We've got four men who are under a vow. You be their sponsor, you purify yourself, and then everybody will see that you're a good Jew. Now, what in the world is all that about? Well, what's going on is there's four Jewish Christians who have taken the Nazarite vow. You're probably familiar with the Nazarite vow. Numbers tells us all about it. A Jewish male could take the Nazarite vow when he was experiencing a time of of, of special devotion to God. This Nazarite vow meant that he didn't cut his hair He abstained from wine. He abstained from meat. He did all sorts of things. And it was for an extended period of time, maybe months or maybe years. And then when he took this vow, he couldn't just end it any time he wanted. Okay, that's enough. I'm going to shave my hair and go on with life now. When he ended the vow, it had to be ended in a special way by offering sacrifices in the temple. The sacrifices that he had to offer were one male ram, one female ram, bread offerings, and various drink offerings. Or in other words, it was fairly expensive to end the Nazarite vow. 
And so what would often happen was that someone who was under the Nazarite vow could have a sponsor. Somebody could come alongside them and say, we believe in you, we want to support you, we want to help you in this vow that you've taken to God, so we will sponsor you and we will provide the sacrifice to end your vow and we will offer that sacrifice for you. So what James and the others are suggesting to Paul, we've got four people under the Nazarite vow, why don't you sponsor them to end their vow with these sacrifices, right? Then everybody would see you do that, and they would say, oh, Paul is a good Jew after all. Only there's another issue. The other issue is that Paul has been outside of Israel. Now, whenever a Jew went outside of Israel, they had a custom that went like this. When that Jew returned back into Israel, they could not offer sacrifices in the temple until they had purified themselves for seven days. So they had to undergo this ritual seven-day purification before they could offer sacrifices in the temple once again. And all that comes, you can see where that comes from. It comes from this whole mindset of, you know, you've been out in the contaminated Gentile world, and before you can come back into our holy temple, you need to cleanse yourself from that contamination, right? And so Paul's been out there working with the contaminated Jew, or the contaminated Gentiles, and if he cleanses himself and sponsors these four Jewish Christians, in the, in the conclusion of their Nazarite vow, everybody will see that. They'll say, oh, he's a good Jew after all, and everybody will live happily ever after. That's the plan. Now, here's the question. Would you do that? Would you take their suggestion? It's a tough one, isn't it? If he refuses then the wedge between the Gentile church and the Jewish church get wider. If he does it, then not only is he submitting to his opponents, but he runs the risk of confusing the gospel. He runs the risk of those who have a very shaky understanding of the gospel already. He runs the risk of them even being alienated from the gospel even more. As he enters into this temple to give the sacrifices, because the, the sacrifices will be, they will be uh, watched over by the priests who don't believe in Jesus. And the sacrifices will be given in the same temple in which the curtain was torn as Jesus died. So, I mean, we should all clearly, we should see a problem with both solutions. We should clearly understand that is a sticky place to be. Either one that you do, either, whatever Paul does is going to be problematic in one way or another. So what does he do? How does he decide? What would you do? You know, let's not pretend that, that our lives don't oftentimes have decisions that are just this sticky, that are just this complex in which you say, it is really hard to understand which way I should go. Because there's problems with both ways. However, What have we been saying about the Apostle Paul? We've been saying that he's a man that runs the race of his life for an audience of one. He's not a people pleaser. And because he's not a people pleaser, that makes for him the will of God clearly discernible. And once he discerns the will of God, it makes going for the will of God easy. Oh, I shouldn't say very easy. It makes going for the will of God, submitting to the will of God, the only thing that Paul will do. Because he runs his life, he runs the race of his life for an audience of one. Therefore, Paul's not filtering through all this other other data 
when he's trying to decide what I should do, you know, please this guy, please those people, please these, no, he's only got one, and that's God. And so we've been saying that all along, that Paul clearly discerns the will of God because he runs the race of his life for an audience of one. Now Paul is going to really have to put his money where his mouth is because this is about as sticky as it gets. However, Paul has no problem deciding what to do. Paul submits. Paul does it. Paul, Paul sponsors the four young men. He purifies, him, purifies himself and offers the sacrifice. So, Verse, uh, verse 26, then Paul took them in and the next day, he pure, notice, he's, the next day. Okay. Paul doesn't have to say, let me get back to you in a week or so. Let me really, let me talk, talk this over with my people and let's just sort of analyze this thing. I'll get back to you in a week or so. The next day, hey, he took them in and purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So Paul makes the decision. I think this would have been a very distasteful thing for Paul to do, a very unpleasant thing for Paul to do. However, he makes the decision and he makes it with confidence and he makes it quickly, feeling, believing, knowing in his heart that he's doing the will of God. And he does that because, as we said, he's not a people pleaser. But wait just a minute. If Paul is not a people pleaser, isn't this exactly an, an example of pleasing people? I mean, isn't this an example of Paul pleasing his opponents, those who stand against him, so he's going to do this sacrifice thing just in order to please them? Is this not doing exactly what we said Paul is not, or what Paul himself has said that he's not? Think about that one for a minute. The answer, I think, comes when we ask ourselves this question. Why was Paul compelled to go to Jerusalem? We've been saying that for a while. Paul is compelled by the Spirit. He's constrained by the Spirit. He must go to Jerusalem. We haven't yet asked the question, why? What is compelling Paul to go to Jerusalem? I mean, we know the Spirit is, but why? For what purpose must Paul go to Jerusalem? What reason does he have to go to Jerusalem? I'll tell you what it's not. It's not the gospel. Paul does not have to go to Jerusalem to take the gospel there. The gospel started in Jerusalem. That's where Jesus was raised. That's where the Spirit gave birth to the church. He doesn't have to go there to take the gospel there. Why does Paul have to go to Jerusalem? He has to go to Jerusalem to take the offering. To personally take the offering. He is willing to die in order to take the offering to Jerusalem. Now, Paul's not willing to die for money. But what is the offering all about? The offering is all about church unity. And so Paul is willing to die for his Savior. He's willing to die for the gospel. But he's also willing to die for church unity. Makes you ask yourself the question, doesn't it? What, what are you willing to die for? As children of Jesus, as children of God, we should all readily say, well, I'm willing to die for my Savior. I'm willing to die for the Gospel. Are you willing to die for church unity? Jesus was. Paul was. Are you willing to die for church unity? Paul goes to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, 
to bring this offering that he sees as having a real good chance of bringing church unity, of uniting the Gentile church and the Jerusalem church, and that was so important to Paul that he was willing to die for it. So now it all makes sense, doesn't it? If Paul's reason for coming was church unity, then nothing, nothing will stop him from doing everything he possibly can to bring that about. Paul will do anything. He will go to any length short of compromising the gospel. He will go to any length he has to to bring about church unity. That's why he came. And so, therefore, this is an easy one for Paul. Yes, definitely I don't want to do this. Yes, that's very distasteful. However, this is the only choice I can make. The only choice I can take. Because that's why I'm here. That's why the Spirit has brought me here. You see what a difference it makes for Paul to run the race of his life for an audience of one? It makes this crystal clear for him. Yes, he will submit to this. And this won't be easy. Because as he does this, he's basically yielding to his opponents. He's basically submitting to those who revile him, those who have spread rumors about him. Paul's been on the mission field, working and laboring for the gospel, planting who knows how many churches, leading thousands of people to know Jesus, suffering all kinds of tribulation, being beaten and thrown into prison and shipwrecks and all these things. He's out there laboring for the gospel. God is doing powerful things through him, raising people from the dead through him. Meanwhile, these Jewish Christians are sitting here in Jerusalem talking about him. Spreading rumors about him, right? You can imagine how Paul feels about that. So this won't be easy. Yet, for Paul, this is very, very clear. Now, what I want to do in the next couple of minutes is I just want to draw three conclusions that we see from this story of Paul facing what is an enormously difficult decision to make, making the choice he makes, being led clearly by the Spirit to do this, I just want to draw three conclusions from this. And the first conclusion I want to draw is this. Because Paul had one master in his life, he had no trouble discerning the path of God for him. Because Paul had one master in his life, he had no trouble discerning the path of God for him. Because Paul's life was lived for one person, for God and God alone. The answer to this difficult question was clear for him. Take a look in your sermon notes at what Paul writes to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says, For though I am free from all, in other words, I am free. I owe no obligation to these Jewish believers. I owe no obligation to the temple. I owe no obligation anywhere because Christ has set me free. However, I have made myself a servant to all. Paul was completely free, set free by Jesus Christ. However, he makes himself a servant to all, just like Jesus, right? Jesus Christ was the freest human being ever to live. Yet he made himself a servant to all humans. Paul says, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jew I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. In other words, Paul says, my rights are meaningless. My privileges are meaningless. My reputation is meaningless. My name is meaningless. The only thing that matters is Jesus Christ. As he says to the Galatians, I've been crucified in Christ. It's no longer I who live, 
But Christ lives. And because Paul is crucified to himself, because he's made himself a servant to all, he has no problem saying, to the Jew, I'm a Jew. To the Gentile, I'm a Gentile. Because all those things are ultimately meaningless. All those customs and and all those traditions, they're ultimately meaningless. What matters is Jesus Christ and the unity of His church. And so this was crystal clear for Paul. It was crystal clear for him because he lived his life focused only on one, only on Jesus Christ. In your notes here, take a look at the words of Jesus from John chapter 4, verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me to accomplish His work. Jesus lived His life just like Paul. Focused only on pleasing God. Not on pleasing anybody else. Focused only on pleasing God. And isn't it amazing how Jesus compares doing the will of His Father to food? My food is to do the will of my Father who sent me. Not much optional about food, is it? Not much discretionary about food, is it? Right? I mean, we eat a lot of discretionary food, but I'm just talking about food in general. Food is non-optional if you want to live. Food is absolutely necessary if you want to live. I'm one of those folks that if I miss a meal, or even if I'm late eating a meal, you know, I have the kind of the sugar drop thing, and I just, I mean, I just don't feel good. You don't, you don't want to be around me because I need food on a regular basis. Jesus saw the necessity of pleasing His Father as so real, so tangible, so necessary, that He compared it to food. Folks, if I could just be transparent enough with you enough to say, it's not often that I see doing the will of God as just as necessary, just as hour by hour necessary as putting food in my mouth. It's not often that the two of those are on the same level with me. And because of that, I often struggle to make wise decisions, to make godly decisions between options that are faith. It seems like, which is the right decision to make? Which is the right way to go? It's because I don't see the will of God as food that I must put into my mouth hour by hour. Jesus and Paul both saw pleasing God as the essence of life. And so therefore, this wasn't complicated for them. And because of that, Paul could clearly see the path that he was to take in order to bring about church unity. So that's, that's the first conclusion. The second conclusion I want to look at is number two. Paul was absolutely devoid of pride. Paul was completely devoid of pride. As Paul submits to this request by the elders... Just think of how harmful this would have been to Paul's pride. I mean, these were the people that were his enemies. They were outspoken against him. They claimed faith in Christ. Yet they had nothing kind to say about Paul. They opposed him in every way. And as he submits to this, he's submitting to his opponents. And he's submitting to them in something he shouldn't have had to submit in. Essentially, as Paul does this, it's tantamount to admitting that he was wrong. This is equivalent to Paul saying, all right, I guess I shouldn't have been teaching that in that way, or shouldn't have been saying that in that way, and so let me do this to show you that I'm a good Jew. 
mean, it's equivalent to admitting that they were right and Paul was wrong. You see how empty he is of pride? His reputation matters nothing to him. His being right matters nothing to him. You know how fiercely we cling to being right? I mean, it is the most important thing to us, to be seen as being right. Wasn't that the whole problem with Job? Job loses his family. Job loses his wealth. He loses his children. He loses his house. He loses his health. And what is it that bothers Job? For 42 chapters, what bothers him is that other people think he was wrong. That's the whole point of the Job story. He could lose his health, his wealth, and his family easier than he could lose his perception of being seen as right. That's what bothered him the most was that everybody thought that he was wrong. And he couldn't let go of that because he was prideful. Paul has none of that. He willingly submits to being seen as being wrong in order to bring about the ultimate goal of church unity. So that's the second conclusion. The third conclusion is this. This plan of James's doesn't work. In fact, it doesn't work at all. False faith. Take a look. This is from next week. We'll talk about this. Take a look at verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, so Paul has not yet even been purified, he's not yet even offered the sacrifices. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, not even the Jerusalem Jews, the Asian Jews, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place, which he didn't do. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were, they were seeking to kill him, later on he'll be arrested. So this plan doesn't work at all. Which means he was wrong, right? Which means he should have stuck to his principles. Didn't work out. Obviously it wasn't the plan of God. Point number three is this. We must never judge the wisdom of a thing by perceptions of its success or failure. We must never judge the wisdom or the godliness of a thing based on its success or a failure. That's how the world judges the rightness and wrongness of things. That's not how the kingdom of God judges rightness and wrongness. The kingdom of God judges rightness and wrongness based on the Scriptures, not on whether it succeeds or whether it fails. This was the lesson we learned back in chapter 5 with Gamaliel. Remember Gamaliel? Peter and John are brought before the council. They're trying to figure out what to do with Peter and John. They keep on preaching about this guy, Jesus, and they're about to throw him in prison. They're, trying to, they're, they're discussing what to do, and Gamaliel speaks up and says, why don't we just leave him alone and see what comes of this? If it succeeds, then it was of God. If it fails, it was not of God. Wrong. That is not how we judge if things are of God or not. That's how the world judges if things are of God or not. The kingdom of God does not judge what it should and shouldn't do based on the values of those that we're here to convert. And so we must not judge success or failure. We must not judge rightness or wrongness by earthly success. I think we're probably all familiar with the name William Carey. Anybody not familiar with William Carey? He was the father of modern-day missions. 
William Carey's life, by earthly standards, was an utter failure in every way. At an early age, he became burdened for lost people in India and Burma who had never heard of Jesus. And so, moved to go and take the gospel to them, he sets about this, only he fails in every single way. He applies to the mission sending agency. They reject him right out. He finds a way to get to India. He gets on the ship. But his, his new wife, Dorothy, his, uh, his, father, his father and mother-in-law disavow him. We'll have nothing to do with you, with you if you take our daughter overseas. So they disavow him. They get on the ship. They're traveling there to India. The captain of the ship learns what they're doing. He stops off at a port, puts them off the ship, keeps their luggage, and keeps on going. So they're stuck there in, a, in an unknown city. They somehow get to, get to India. They land there. They have seven years with no convert. Not one convert for seven years. His wife Dorothy goes mentally insane. Completely loses it. All of his friends say, you should have her committed. He says, no, I won't. So she, she completely cripples his ministry there because he's spending all of his time caring for his insane wife. Meanwhile, there's no converts at all. He spends decades translating the Scriptures into the local languages, only to have everything lost in a fire. Two decades of translation work up in flames. He never recovered it. His life, by all standards, was a complete failure. However, we must never, never measure the success or measure the rightness of a thing based on its earthly success or earthly failure. 